Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's program here on Dufostrasse in Zurich, my guest today, Emily Isauer and Marcus Schugel. They've got their views on the weekend's biggest stories. Emily, are we starting here? Other side of the Atlantic, Finland, what, what have you spotted for us? Well, we can at least go to Finland where there's a new fascinating study on people working from home. So which days of the week are the most popular? Why do people work from home after the pandemic still? Very good. Someone who's not at home, though, uh, is our very own Tom Edwards. He's going to be bringing us the news from London from our studio there. Also, we're heading to Ljubljana for the latest from the Balkans. I'm Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, and I'll have news of a genuine culture war in Slovenia, a possible end to number plate nonsense in Kosovo, and how to niggle the neighbours with an airport name. Plus, Isabella Smith from Books and Company in Copenhagen will be with us with her, with her latest recommendations, and Adrian Garcia updates us on the sale of one of Paris's best-loved department stores, Bay Ashve. It's the 12th of November, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. Good morning from an absolutely drizzly and uh, rather depressing Zurich, but we're going to try to lift the mood uh, here this morning. I'm very happy to say that uh, Emily Isahau is here. Of course, you heard him at the top of the show. Very academic program we have this morning as well. Uh, he's the program coordinator for peace mediation at ETH in Zurich. Also, Marcus Schugel is here, of course, another regular voice, associate professor at St. Gallen University, working with the Institute of Marketing. I'm also happy to say that uh, over in London, our head of radio, what a title that is, Tom Edwards uh, is also with us. Uh, this morning as well. Good morning, Tom. Good morning to you, Tyler. That's more respectful uh, than uh, Josh Fennett, who just calls me the head of lettuce. It's not very nice, is it? <laughs> not very nice, but uh, that, that's, Accurate, sort of the, maybe. That, that's sort of the banter that happens in the middle of the office. Uh, Marcus, I'm going to, and Tom, please jump in on this one, but I'm going to start with you because we were just talking before the program started uh, about it, we're, we're in that period right now where uh, brands, big and small, uh, are, of course, assaulting our uh, all the screens uh, that, of course, impact our lives uh, ev- every day. Is this sort of the marketing professor's dream time of year because there are so many aspects of of culture, society, uh, flogging things uh, that this is really sort of the high season for you. Yeah, sort of it is. Um, It is the high season for everything that is running around retail. It's the high season. We've just got the single days in in e-business. The commercials that you mentioned, the ads with the celebrities, and that's going to be coming, I think, within the next two weeks from the big two two retailers in Switzerland as well. They're going to have a huge competition. They normally do it in their own songs, and then they vote which one is the best, and everything comes down to the idea, how do we make people happy before Christmas shopping the right things? But we're getting some mixed signals, I think. When you look at, um, there's a study done by the Gottlieb Duttweiler Institute here in Switzerland, and they did a study on how boring shopping is for for Swiss people, at least. And uh, I think they, they did a survey out of Europe, but the idea is, you don't like to go shopping right now, as Emma mm. was mentioning already, the full streets and all that stuff. And in fact, I found some some indicators that customers start to complain lining up in front of luxury stores, yeah, and you need to line up for a luxury experience. So there's, there's a lot of stuff coming up that is... Um, changing i think and on beyond of what's happening in the world maybe we see a little shift in consumer spendings this year but on the other hand um when christmas comes you want to have something under the tree so, of course well i listen I, I don't think the people at uh, glatt centrum which is a a mall over the hill from zurich where i had to go yesterday because it's the only branch of muji uh, that uh, is is in zurich but uh, so that you, you make sort of the track and it was absolutely Rammed and uh, Tom, you like this one. So this this mall has um, it's multi levels. Um, it, it's it sort of speaks to, of course, uh, Switzerland's yeah, I would say sort of approach to self responsibility. And they've got these snaking slides that go, you know, they they they, they drop sort of thirty meters. And you just whack your kids in them, and then they sort of spiral all the way down at high speed in these in these tubes. You know, and and there's actually not like not a huge crash pad at the bottom or anything. And then these kids are racing up the escalators. Of course, uh, with sometimes with the parents and sometimes the, the parents are all at a wine bar somewhere else uh, in the mall. Appealing, Tom? Well, absolutely. I mean, although, to be honest, I don't need any architectural uh, assistance, Tyler, to get my kids to spiral dangerously out of control in a retail setting. They can do that just on their own. But that does yeah. sound like fun. I'd like to uh, have a bash. I was just reflecting, um, actually, on those remarks about retail therapy and enjoying Christmas is it too soon everyone enjoys a bit of retail Tyler I think my issue is when it's being sold to you as 
such fun. It's the old organised fun problem. That's mm. where that's where it jars with me because even Christmas shopping. Of course, you know we want to ensure it's a merry occasion, but the 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 kind of logistical complexities of it. What are we? Eight weeks out? It's too soon, and I don't want someone to tell me whether it's Michael Bublé or anyone else over a joint of ham uh, that I should be enjoying the experience. I think it's up to me to decide. That's my that's my two cents. Tom, I think you're actually baiting our our Finnish uh, guest around the table as well. Can you impose fun? on fins even at this time of year <laughs> i think it's perhaps the only time of the year that you can do that i've just actually yesterday received a video from my sister and my nephew jumping next to a santa at a finnish mall so i, I think it is a jumping thing. away from her but jumping on santa's lap <laughs> um close to santa apparently that was the only thing he did he was so excited so i, I do think um there's a little bit of fun uh, in finland taking place at this time of the year at malls with a lot of kids kind of lining up to see santa tom tell us uh, in london of course said a bit of a scene a little bit more than a bit of chaos and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about of course the protests and everything that's been unfolding uh, but let's go back to the consumer story uh, as, as well of course you in your daily commute uh, maybe you're out and about uh, on the weekends uh, do you sort of notice uh, as well of course you know many of the, the summer guests visitors uh, to London have they gone away that uh, they've headed back to to the Gulf uh, elsewhere uh, what's sort of the mood right now is it does it feel like mostly a domestic play uh, when it comes to people uh, filling the stores as as Marcus is saying lining up in front of luxury goods shops well not really I think you're, you're quite right you obviously certainly in in the West End and around Marlon Bone and Mayfair, we're used to that particular uh, uptick that you've mentioned through the ha-ha-ha balmy summer months here. But it's interesting, Tyler, that kind of bled right through to kind of the, the week, the two weeks around freeze um, here in the in, in UK capital, which I it was transparently clogging the streets with incoming uh, tourists, business travellers, and lots and lots of money sloshing around. And I think that's just kind of continued to, to drift on. Emma was sort of nodding along next to me. I, I haven't noticed that, and it still feels like a very international uh, play here in the UK. What is interesting, and people might have read this in some of Andrew Tuck's reflections in our newsletter yesterday, lots and lots of openings, and not just in retail, but in, in food, in F&B, Tyler, and in hospitality. It doesn't feel like it's letting up at all. And I don't know whether... I kind of get this sense that in the UK... In terms of economic confidence, we're being informed a little bit maybe more by our brothers and sisters on the other side of the Atlantic. I know we're still waiting, soft landing in the US, etc. But some of the, I don't know, slightly brighter outlook, maybe a little more confidence, both from uh, the economists, uh, you know, on the news broadcast, but also from consumers. I I feel it's kind of traveling that way. I don't know if that's something you see uh, in, in Zurich. Uh, up to a point, but uh, you, you've painted a picture. You, you said Emma, Emma Nelson is sort of you know, nodding along beside you. Uh, Emma, um, we just don't want to have the sort of you know image of like a bobbing bird's head uh, in the studio. Uh, please, <laughs> please enlighten us. Uh, no, well, yesterday I was in, in Soho um, and uh, the people that we were with noticed that we were the only people speaking English. It was quite astonishing in Carnaby Street where you had people coming down to take photographs of the lights which had all all changed and everything was up and everything looks super, super Christmassy. It's as if they've just decided that it doesn't matter what the electricity bill is going to be this this Christmas. We're going to pull every plug, put every plug going. Um, but it was Italian, it was Chinese, it was Japanese, it was Korean, it was French. It was everybody is clearly noticing that the pound is weak and everybody can come and probably properly fill their boots here. In contrast with what the British Retail Consortium has been saying this week, which is um, consumer spending on gen- in general is is lowering. So we're now seeing this situation where you have this pocket of intense international interest in the centre of London, yet I suspect that if you step five miles up the road, you're going to see a completely different picture. We have Marcus uh, nodding uh, here in the studio, which this is, of course, not isolated, of course, to the UK uh, consumer sentiment you know, all over Europe, but also all over the world as well. The ongoing question in uh, in the Wall Street Journal every day, you know, is a recession coming or, or not? Uh, they, they definitely sort of dine out on, on that as a headline. But what is your take when, when we think about uh, consumer confidence, particularly at a time of year? As we know, you know, many, many uh, retailers had a very good summer, particularly in Europe, because there was just this surge of the world here. Uh, but what does that mean now as we're into the last quarter? 
I'm I'm looking at it from the from the perspective of mixed signals. I uh, I can't give you in the direction that it's it's going, but in, in, it's contradicting so much this year. On the one hand, you see Bahnhofstraße is filled, people are coming, and especially it's tourists here as well. And as Zurich is not, uh, Switzerland is not hit that hard with the inflation rate, I don't see there a real downturn. But I think people are getting <clears throat> more and more cautious where to spend their money. And they want to spend it on something that is either a good experience, we know that for years, or it might be something that's worthwhile doing something good. So there might be a little bit more spending for for um, for charities and all that stuff, hopefully. And I'm not... I don't have a grip on it, and that's that's making me a little bit nervous. Normally, you could say it's going in the direction e-commerce is growing, but I think uh, what is happening in London, you see, I was just in Den Haag in Amsterdam, and you see there a similar trend that a lot of stores are opening up. And hospitality might be the one thing that's that's really in, in food and beverage is the one thing that's going to be bigger next in the next three to four weeks, months to come. But I'm a researcher. It depends always, you know. Of course, yeah. You, you have you have the luxury of also having a, sort of a, a retroactive uh, t- take take on things um, as well. Tom, could we just um, shift gears a little bit? Uh, of course, in a moment or a little bit later in the program, we're going to be heading uh, to to Paris to speak to Adrian Garcia, um, who will be, of course, uh, talking a little bit about uh, the. Protest, or even call them sort of counter-protest, or or even just uh, a march of support uh, that will happen, of course, in in France today. Uh, but uh, just tell us, uh, of course, we saw you know various scenes uh, uh, from the streets of London yesterday, uh, and of course, you know, for our listeners who who maybe are not following the story, it's it's not just about pro-Palestinian uh, you know protests. There's also in the background as well been an enormous story um, this week, uh, of course, about the the Home Secretary uh, being very outspoken about. The the measures of the Metropolitan Police um, and, 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 and many calls uh, for her resignation as well. Yeah, that's right, Tyler. Obviously, the Home Secretary, Suella Bradman, you know, she's no stranger to courting controversy. And it's interesting, you know, if you look at these remarks this week, I would say deliberately incendiary. It, it's a calculated, you know, it's a playbook strategy of right-leaning uh, politicians, especially if, as as Braverman and the Tories are in this country, if they're in the death throes of their administration, to court exactly this kind of animus. I think what's unusual about this is there's normally some extra caution, uh, particularly around public order. And there's also a sensitivity, particularly around Armistice Day. Obviously, this is the Sunday where we have our uh, the two-minute silence. It's usually uh, respectful. It's quite emotional. I, and I don't think... And, and it's pretty apolitical, Tyler. I think that's what's interesting about it. Um, but she's kind of stamped all over that, as she has done before with her pronouncements on various things. I, I think she's in a very, very difficult uh, position, precisely because that kind of rhetoric... It has a political objective from her point of view and her party's point of view, although they say she was speaking out of turn. Um, but it has very immediate uh, effect on certain other stakeholders. And if you look at this counter-protest, and I use that term, Tyler, very loosely, um, there were uh, EDL, which is a kind of a, a mad, absolutely tin hat, lunatic, right-wing fringe organisation. They all turned out. Most of the people who were arrested at the counter-protest their previous convictions were for football violence, Tyler, which I think uh, tells you most of what you need to know about what their motivations were. Uh, indeed. And, and this is also, in a way, you know, she was playing to, to this audience as well, uh, wasn't she? Because if you if you read the press, she was... And, and also, you know, a rather... Um, curious open well not open letter she wrote she wrote an an editorial in the times tom as well which was supposedly unauthorized you also wonder what are the mechanics what's happening what are the machinations behind the scenes um in in whitehall as well that you can have your home secretary write a letter um in in of course one of the main newspapers of record uh in uh in 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 the uk um and, and somehow no one really sort of signed off on this and that she went completely rogue on it at the same time it's just a problem. It's a, it's a kind of an, an unraveling. And I think we've seen it before, particularly when you have had a government or a party in government for, as most people probably in this country would say, an inexplicably uh, long, uninterrupted period. And it just feels like they're kind of circling the, the drain. I, I think you're exactly right. How is it possible that the government machine cannot operate slightly more tightly? And it's not like it is an outlier or a member of the, the party fringes. This is the Home Secretary. And as I said... Uh, you know, it, it it puts people, members of the public, uh, people who are 
you might question the timing and their motivation, but it puts people who are maybe just demonstrating their right to peaceful protest, uh, members of the of the police services, members of the public, uh, directly in, in harm's way. I think it was really grossly uh, irresponsible, bizarre, and I think it, it somewhat indicates the direction of travel if we try and isolate, as you say, these machinations from the completely vexing, awful turbulent issue of the Israel-Gaza conflict, it it is indicative, I think, of the direction of travel for UK domestic politics, or certainly on the Tory side, uh, for the months ahead. Uh, Emily, does this... uh you know, it is, well, as Tom just said, you know, it poses a problem for domestic politics uh, in the UK. On one side, of course, you have um, the, the Foreign Commonwealth Office uh, in, in the UK and, and foreign ministries of governments uh, all over uh, having to look at how do you navigate your way through this. And that's, of course, on the external side, uh, from a humanitarian perspective, from a peace brokering side. Then you've also got then very uh, busy home ministries as well, also sort of dealing with this with, with this collision um, of communities uh, on, on their own turf. And I'm wondering from, from your perspective, from a you know, speaking on beyond be or at least as as a Finn in Switzerland, uh, how, how you see this playing out? And I'm, I'm thinking from a domestic point of view um, as well. You do not have the same communities, uh, the same populations uh, as well um, in in Finland. So does that allow Finland also to to not have the the domestic policy concern, um, and maybe also allows uh, politicians to play more of a role uh, on the international stage? And of course. Finland being a place, place reasonably famous for peace brokering. Absolutely. And what do you see in Finland recently is also related to what's going on um, in Israel and Palestine is there is a lot of focus on what is the foreign minister saying? How is Finland voting uh, at the level of the United Nations? So there is a lot of focus and, and debate around this. Of course, what you see, not just in Finland, but elsewhere, is a highly polarized debate. It's become almost like a football match where you have to pick sides, whereas if the only pick we kind of should pick is is, is the people suffering and, uh, and then kind of try to alleviate humanitarian suffering. And when it comes to the conflict itself, in a way, those aspects of it that make it analytically fascinating, I think, are exactly the ones that make it one of the toughest um, kind of um, nuts to crack in the sense that you are dealing with so many different levels uh, at the international level, regional level dynamics, intra-party dynamics, be it within the Israeli society and government, within Hamas, between it's not um, there, the fragmentation of various groupings. So to think that there's one easy answer, I, I think, is a fallacy, and you need to address this at all different levels, yet kind of in the media and political discourse, uh, we are looking at it in a highly polarized way, which from a peace perspective, of course, is, is not so constructive. Mm. Um, so we should have, while kind of dealing with the past and then kind of uh, looking at historical narratives, our eyes should be on the future and then see do, how, where do we go from here. Uh, Tom, let's uh, maybe just uh, maybe flip open the, the front pages from, from elsewhere uh, in the world, uh, but we can start maybe in uh, in the UK. Of course, aside from uh, this uh, being uh, the Armistice Weekend uh, and and the action, or maybe not so much action around the Cenotaph uh, in London yesterday, what else has uh, caught your eye news-wise? Uh, yeah, well, I'm still, I'm still kind of distracted by that story that Emma had in her news headlines about that, that lion. In, in Rome, I don't want to go straight for the le- for the levity, uh, Tyler. I never understood. I know I knew there were lions in the in the Roman circus, but I wasn't quite sure that was exactly what they meant. But maybe we'll come back to the novelty animal story uh, later. W- one thing that I did notice actually, which is being picked up quite broadly in the UK papers and some of the European titles, which does speak a little bit actually to. Uh, Israel Gaza was this idea that the UAE is very keen to maintain its diplomatic links with with Israel and it's funny Tyler you know Emily's remarks then were really interesting about how polarized coverage is we're obviously always talking about you know benchmarking new standards where to look for exemplars and I know well for, for you Tyler and your guests there this idea of diplomatic uh, progressive diplomatic positions it's interesting because I wonder as we look to 24 maybe we need to slightly pivot and look at other geographies uh, other leaders other other people to be demonstrative in their diplomatic behaviors um, rather than the the same old 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 players and i thought that story which i was reading about the uae still keen to, to to maintain those relationships was interesting i don't know if, if emily thinks there's much uh to, to store to, to set by that 
Um, uh, perhaps not specifically in the UAE, but absolutely I agree. Um, in these times, you need to get creative. You need to look at innovative approaches. I would have my eyes also on Riyadh at the Arab League Summit, looking at kind of Iran and Saudi Arabia being in the room, a deal that was brokered by China earlier in the year, kind of a re-establishment of diplomatic ties. So again, um, as much as that might make us uncomfortable, we do need to look at innovative approaches and solutions, and that includes different actors who perhaps from a European perspective, might be new actors in the field. But actually, if you look at it more objectively, they have been in the game um, mm. for decades and centuries. So just, again, um, amplifying those constructive voices, no matter where they come from. Tom, I think one of the curious things uh, is just having come back from uh, Asia almost two weeks out there as well, time spent uh, in uh, in Southeast Asia, but also in China, in Hong Kong as well, you also realize that, okay, certainly, uh, you know, the, the Palestine-Israel story is something which is a little bit, you know, closer to, to our doorstep. Of course, it is It is a story with global ramifications at the same time, uh, Ukraine uh, being something very different, but also how these stories are just, it's not part of the daily conversation. Uh, it is, so this is the other thing we, we're, you know, we always often talk about sort of our Anglo uh, news bubble and, and what, what we're sort of focused on. I think that's the curious thing. Also, when you watch the major international news networks, you know, the big players, the BBC, CNN, what's remarkable as well is that you don't see them playing uh, to the biggest populations in the world in terms of just what is their daily, the daily news coverage. Uh, and and that, that's, that's remarkable to see. Though I have to say the one story which, you know, is very present in Thailand, of course, is the plight of all of the, the Thai workers in Israel. Uh, and, you know, this is a story which has had a, you know, a little bit of uh, coverage maybe at the top um, of this conflict, but you realize how raw this story is. And in, in, in a way, the, the, the Thai foreign ministry being caught on the back foot, uh, but also having to be very front and center as to what do they do with these people who are, who are really caught in the middle and not a very pretty story. Um, put park for, for one moment, of course, what's happened with, within the conflict, but also the treatment of these people um, as as well. Um, and this is this is something which I wonder, will the story start to play out afterwards? Because you realize that when it comes to true also day-to-day -day humanitarian uh, measures and treatment of migrant workers, uh, not so upstanding. No, absolutely, Tyler. And I think that's it's a really interesting point. And it just underscores this, this wider issue, which is that the longer these conflicts rumble on, the worse it is for everybody. It doesn't matter what you, the nature of your stakeholding is. It doesn't matter how uh, sort of collateral the damage. All you can be sure of is that the longer it drags on, the worse, the worse it is for for everybody. But just doubling back, Tyler, to your point, I think about this sort of, well, it's been a perennial topic, hasn't it, for, for us to discuss, which is this sort of tyranny of the of the Anglosphere. And it's so frustrating because anyone would imagine that it is only the conversations that are going to happen in, you know, London, Paris, maybe, you know, New York, Washington, DC, that are going to inform the direction of travel. And it's so short-sighted. That is why I would remind listeners who grow frustrated with other outlets of course we have a program called, called the globalist every every weekday morning you know that is what we're about which is trying to change up that narrative ensure the discourse is more inclusive and it's not just about inclusivity it's about um the what 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 is actually on people's minds and reflecting that that reality it's not a one-way street it's not a top-down thing i think that's so important and as you say tyler you know if you if you consider what is making conversation in whether you know it doesn't matter where it is if it's bangkok or singapore or hong kong or tokyo th there are just all these other narratives at play and it's funny because we're navigating this moment as we head into 24 look general election year in the u.s is always mega but you know i've, I've just cast an eye around the papers today once you get past, certainly in the UK presses, coverage of what's happening domestically, the first foreign story is Donald Trump's pontificating about something, something, something. It, it, we're just missing vast tracts of the planet where really consequential things are, are happening. So uh, it's super important, I think, you're exactly right, to remind people to be mindful of that and to, well, broaden their, 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 their sources of, of news every day if they can. Tom, I know we've got news in 20 seconds, but Emily's putting up his, uh, his hand as, as a very polite guest. Emily. No, just to say that I'm smiling. It's as if Tom had been with our students for the past week up in the Swiss mountains. Maybe he we, was. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe was. He, had, he, he was in student drag. You never that's, know. That's precisely what we had focused on in terms of how do conflict media, uh, peace mediators do conflict analysis. And it's exactly that, collecting different narratives, collecting subjective perceptions of reality, and then trying to kind of come up with a story based on that. And then kind of broadening, kind of being conscious of your own world 
worldview and trying to go beyond that in terms of sources of narratives and, and news. So absolutely, that was just music to my ears. Uh, but maybe, Emily, did, did you, if you think back, did you see sort of a hirsute gentleman in a hoodie in the back of your classroom? That could, <laughs> that could have been our Tom Edwards. Well, we had a few kind of uh, staff from the hotel popping in and out of our uh, kind of secretive meeting room. So who knows? Oh, that old trick. Tom, were you with the mop? Were you with the mop and the penny? Uh, well, that's one of my go-tos, you know, when I'm sort of like Inspector Clouseau, you know, I have these different disguises. I, I'm going to go and work on getting my uh, Roman lion get up going Tyler Prowl a few streets because you can prowl by night. Also, everyone stays, <laughs> stays at a safe distance. You can be much more effective as an investigative journalist that way, you know. Tom, stay around for 90 seconds. We have to talk about that lion. Emma Nelson uh, is there with, uh, or beside you, I believe, with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The Rafa border crossing between Egypt and Gaza is expected to reopen today after 48 hours. Meanwhile, Palestinian officials say several children have died and dozens are at risk after a fuel run out at Gaza's largest hospital. Germany's government is to double its military aid for Ukraine next year to 8 billion euros. The boost will lift Germany's defence spending beyond the 2% GDP pledged by all NATO members. An Icelandic volcano could erupt within hours, according to experts, after 1,500 earthquakes have rocked the country over the last 48 hours. Iceland's declared a state of emergency after fears of an eruption of the Fagradalsfjall volcano. A lion's been filmed prowling the streets of an Italian seaside town for several hours after it escaped from the circus. Videos show the very big cat walking through dark and deserted streets of Ladispoli near Rome. And throughout history, people have sought answers about the unknown using the likes of tarot cards and tea leaves. Now a woman from Chicago claims she can see into your future by reading a piece of cheese. Jennifer Billock says her love of the practice, called tyromancy, stems from her combined love of divination and cheese. She asks people to bring up to four pieces of cheese for a reading. The best sorts are Swiss, blue or anything with interesting surfaces, the shapes of which Jennifer will interpret. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Where do we go with this? I, I was I was also thinking, as you know, Emma, we've we've got uh, a little a little side project uh, starting uh, this Thursday. We we have a a, a new spin off which is uh, called the Oxen. Uh, it's in Kuznak, just outside of Zurich, uh, where we're going to have a fondue pop up uh, running right through till the, uh, the 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 winter ski break. Uh, but it, it kicks off this Thursday. And I was actually sort of wondering what what she would do with a bubbling pot of fondue. Well, uh, maybe we should um, do the reading before the fondue kicks off properly, because I think the future might get a bit more murky if the cheese goes liquid. But apparently Swiss cheese is is the one to go for, because she can read the holes. Um, Tom Edwards, now just talk about this line very quickly. I had to make a side note as well, because there's there's probably two things that, that sort of strike fear in the heart of any good news reader or news anchor, and that is having to pronounce Icelandic volcanoes and... And 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 then and and Thai and Thai last names. I, I think you know yeah. whenever, whenever there's Thai elections, you think, oh my God, there are at least twenty eight letters in that last name. Uh, what am I going to do with? It? And then and, and I was going to say actually, Icelandic volcanoes are not are not far off. Yeah, that's tricky. I I did I ask Emma earlier if it was the usual spelling of that. Uh, uh, what was the name of that? Say Fagrid- it again, Emma. Fagradalsfjall. Oh, you got to be you got to be careful. You got to tread carefully with that one. Oh, God, you got. <laughs> um, I, two, Tyler, I've got two quick reflections for you. Obviously, yes. um, initially, when uh, Emma was explaining that that lion was prowling at the Italian seaside, I did wonder if it was uh, Forte de Miaomi, just briefly. Oh, jeez. Um, and then I wondered with the cheese reader, as long, I, as, long as she had some Gouda news for me, uh, then I'd be okay with it. Emma, do, does Tom know where the door is in Studio One? I'm exhausted, Tyler. Um <laughs> Tom, and the, 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 uh, the one thing in this one that's got the, just going back briefly to the uh, to the Icelandic volcano, mm. this one's much easier to say than the one from a few years ago. Do you remember oh, when yeah. there was a big ice one? Because yeah, yeah, that, that was one. that that you had to really really work. I think it was Ayafjalla Jökull, and we would use uh, news readers. We would all have to sit down and and you know just before you run a race, you kind of like get your muscles ready and you limber mm. up. We would all have to do that. So we got Ayafjalla Jökull just about Ayaf. Uh, there we go. It's Dim, dim and distant past. So there are things which are, are sort of like areas that you've got to be really careful for. At least you can see the Icelandic volcano coming. The worst one is school caretaker to say. It is impossible to say at speed. Oh, oh well, and here, here's another one. That this is, I think, the great thing about Thailand, though, is that everyone, of course, just has, everyone knows that 
probably you know most non-ties have given up so you just meet people and their names are oak and and boat and apple <laughs> and pear and that makes it much much easier and very considerate of the ties as well i always take my time with a tie name i really do and <laughs> you if you really hear me, if you hear me on the globalist i will okay here's a terrible confession i actually try and when i'm preparing my cues i always try and remove the names from the queue and then i get the guests to say it is that why we've got Gwen Robinson then as as our, our, our regular? Anybody, our regular. frankly, anybody who can have a go at it with confidence. I, I hold my hands up now. If you're a regular listener to The Globalist, watch out. You'll never hear me say a Thai name if I can help it. Now, Tom, I, I believe maybe Tom might have already escaped uh, like that lion uh, out of the studio already. But we have another uh, fantastic uh, and regular voice uh, joining us uh, on the line. I believe he's in Ljubljana this morning. That's where he should be on a Sunday morning. Uh, Guy Delaney, our Balkans correspondent, is with us. Good morning, Guy. Good morning, Tyler. I am indeed in Ljubljana. And you're making me nostalgic with all this talk of difficult names for newsreaders because uh, in the dim and distant, I used to present Sports Roundup on BBC World Service. And you can imagine the names that we got thrown at us on Sports Roundup. And, you know, uh, there'd be a... Uh, what was the name? Abdu Japarov, but I've forgotten what his first name was. The, the great... Uh, the, the Tashkent Express, the, the cycling sprinter. He was a bit of a nightmare to pronounce if he didn't know what was coming. And there was a Thai... Uh, there was a Sri Lankan sprinter, female sprinter. And I have been looking this up, and maybe it's a, it's a fever dream. Maybe it's just post-traumatic stress from, from trying to pronounce her name on all those occasions. But I've got it in my head that her name was Ramalamanaringa. And uh, there was a colleague of mine, Mike Costello, who used to do the commentary. And, of course, he'd have to do the sprint commentaries, 100 metres, 10 seconds. And he said, you know, the real problem is she's a fast starter. So, of course, that would be, have to be the first name out of his mouth when the race started. And you can imagine what it was like. You're trying to commentate at speed with a name like that of many, many syllables. Now, maybe not as many challenges uh, with uh, with names from Serbia or or Croatia, but I think I think we're going to start in Slovenia um, because you've got uh, a culture war story from your side of the world. Indeed, I do, and I've been spending a couple of weeks uh, doing things around this particular culture war story, which is not the kind of culture war that people are used to. People are used to this being all about uh, questions of political values and setting up fights to gain voters and that sort of thing. And this one genuinely does involve culture. So we've got something which has just opened in Ljubljana called Center Rog. And to me, this looks like a marvellous innovation for the city. It's what used to be a bicycle factory, which has been out of use for, let me see, getting on for 30-odd years now, and it's now been transformed into a creative centre. So what they've got there, are they've got numerous labs doing things like textiles, cooking, um, 3D printing, and the idea is that anybody can go and use them. You don't have to be a professional, you don't have to have any knowledge at all. You can book a session and learn. You can go there with a project and they'll help you facilitate it. Or if you're a professional, there are studios there that you can work in and you can use these labs for fabricating metal parts, wooden parts. I met a lamp designer the other day who's making very high-end design lamps, table lamps, and he's able to fabricate the parts for his lamps there. So this all seems marvellous, but in the interim, while this factory was out of action, it was squatted, and it was what they, they called it an autonomous centre. And there was all sorts of different stuff going on there, from you know, skate parks to artists' studios. They didn't have power, they didn't have running water, but what they did have was spaces which they controlled themselves. And they're extremely unhappy about this new centre that they say they haven't been included in it. And on the opening night, there were you know, scores of them outside uh, beating drums and throwing eggs, while on the inside you had a band uh, called Stroy Machine who were uh, beating metal drums and <laughs> sounding very industrial. And the, 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 the contrast, or rather the harmony, I suppose, between what was going on outside and inside was, was quite something. But, uh, you know, it, it sort of outlines that even, I suppose, no good deed goes unpunished, Tyler. That the people who've set up Centre or generally, genuinely think they're doing a good thing for the community. But parts of that community think that they've had something ripped away from them. Mm. Now, speaking of things being ripped away, uh, should we be talking about uh, number plates in uh, in Kosovo? Uh, you, you sort of set us up at the top of the program, uh, guy. What's uh, what's happening? 
Have, have we spoken about number plates in Kosovo before, Tyler? I, 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 I think, you know, over the years, we probably touched on yeah. it, but, uh, so, and maybe some of our listeners might remember, but just uh, tell, us, tell us what's at the core of this story. So for the unfamiliar, in North Kosovo, there are four municipalities which are majority Serb. So most of the people that live in North Kosovo are ethnic Serbs, and they have refused to recognize uh, any of Kosovo's um, state institutions, and that includes the authority which issues number plates. And they've carried on using Serbian-issued number plates. And crucially, these are Serbian-issued number plates which bear the initials of these municipalities in North Kosovo. So this is basically Belgrade issuing number plates for these Kosovo municipalities. And that's been a great bone of contention between Belgrade and Pristina, a great bone of contention within Kosovo between these ethnic Serb communities and the Kosovo authorities. And we've seen it break down before when they've the, the Pristina authorities have tried to enforce uh, the ruling that they should have Kosovo number plates, we've seen it become violent. Blockades on the roads, borders blocked, all sorts. It's kicked off quite a lot over the past couple of years. Well, now an odd thing is happening. Uh, the Kosovo authorities have set a new deadline of the 1st of December for people to swap their Serbian-issued number plates for Kosovo-issued number plates, and people are going along with it. And more than that, the mobile phone service, MTS, is sending messages to people in North Kosovo, reminding them to do this, encouraging them to do this. And MTS is owned by Serbia's government. And there's been no announcements from Serbia about this, that, oh, we're happy for you to do this. But the uh, the text messages are, are broadcasting the intentions loud and clear. So while we've been talking quite a lot recently about all the issues and tensions between Serbia and Kosovo, it looks like this is one issue which is actually going to be resolved. Uh, interesting, uh, and that there's a yeah a, a mobile uh, phone player also at uh, at, at least at, at the core of it or at, at the fringes of it. Um, maybe just uh, before we go, um, a little bit of a, a, a Croatia story uh, as well, uh, in, involving airports naming uh, and and other things. Indeed. So the, earlier this month, Dubrovnik Airport got a new name. It's now called Ruja Boskovic Airport. Um, Ruja Boskovic, for those who don't know, he was an 18th century astronomer and physicist. And he's one of those figures, a bit like Nikola Tesla, who's claimed by lots of different people. Um, so Nikola Tesla is claimed by uh, Serbia and Croatia, and you'll see his name all over what used to be Yugoslavia. And uh, the Ruja Boskovic is <laughs> claimed by Serbia and Croatia and also spent time living in Italy and France. And uh, there's a school in Belgrade called Ruja Boskovic, for example. There's a science institute in Zagreb called Ruja Boskovic. Now there's the airport in Dubrovnik called Ruja Boskovic. And this is in particular cocking a snook at Bosnian Serbs because there's uh, another smaller airport uh, about 30 kilometers from Dubrovnik called Trebinje. And that's in Republika Srpska in Bosnia. And they've been tr tr planning to make this into a much more sizable airport with low-cost flights to take advantage of the tourism in Dubrovnik. And guess what they were going to call it? Tell us. Roger Boskovic. And uh, so this is a case of you, sn you, you snooze, you lose. And uh, it's. Uh, I, listen, the, the, I've, I've got Marcus Sugar here, sort of just you know sh shaking his head as well. You know, as, as a marketing man, he's probably just thinking like, just leave it as Dubrovnik as well, because we sort of talk about tongue twisters. Um, you know, Ruja Boskovic is maybe sort of doesn't really roll off your tongue as well if you're a captain, maybe for I don't know Finnair or someone who's coming in for a landing. It, it really as well. doesn't. But, but, but this is is unique, you know. So it would be differentiating enough. You don't need to take the name of somebody else and get everybody confused. Major law and branding. So sorry. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I, I agree totally, but, you know, they, this is what they do in these parts of the world. So Nikola Tesla for Belgrade is an obvious way of Serbia cocking a snook at Croatia. Franjo Tudjman, which is what Zagreb renamed themselves a couple of years ago. Well, Franjo Tudjman was the wartime leader. And when I say wartime, I mean homeland war slash mm. Balkans war of the 1990s leader of Croatia. Uh, and Skopje, of course, in North Macedonia, until a couple of years ago, had Alexander the Great, which was a snook very much being cocked at Greece. So this is this is part of the course in our region, I'm afraid. Absolutely, and I think it's it's a it's a future consultancy job uh, also, uh, yeah. uh, maybe for you, Emily, as well. It's sort of mediating airport naming as well. Right? Well, uh, if anything, it speaks to the fact that a peace mediation and and conflict resolution deals with big diplomatic issues, but also very very rightfully so with very technical issues as well. That in and of themselves can be 
big issues relating to long historical narratives. Indeed. Um, Guy Delaney, have a very good week. Very good uh, to speak to you. Uh, that was our man in the Balkans. It's just coming up to uh, 10.45 uh, here in Zurich. It's going to be 10.45 uh, also up in Copenhagen where we're heading in a moment. But first, we're going to go away for a very short break, but we'll be back after this. Funny how many people get these things wrong. I go into a lot of jazz clubs and I go, what made you build it like this? Everyone's got an opinion about design these days. Join us on a journey to cut through the noise as we sit down with some of the design greats. It's possible to really improve how we live and how we work through design. We also have you covered on everything from architecture to product design to fonts and fashion too. She has her own signature and creates beautiful and also comfortable clothes that women can really spend their days in. Make sure you tune in every Tuesday at 2000 London time for Monocle's weekly design show, Monocle on Design. Or find it wherever you get your podcasts. Tyler Brule, just uh, gone 1046 uh, here in Zurich. We're heading to Copenhagen. Actually, we're heading to Hellerup to be uh, more specific uh, to chat to Isabella Smith. She's the owner of the bookshop Books and Company. I think one of the uh, the best little uh, reading outlets uh, anywhere uh, up in the Nordics. Uh, and good morning, Isabella. Good morning, Tyler. Thank you so much. Nice Not to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you. Of course, this is a bookseller's season, uh, probably what uh, I guess only matched by maybe the, those those days heading into summer when people are uh, looking for uh, sun lounger yeah. uh, reads. Uh, so uh, if we were going into the shop, if we were in there yesterday, I'm not sure if you're open for Sundays over the over the Christmas break or not. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happens in uh, in uh, in Denmark. But uh, what, what's uh, what's what's front and center well, for you right change. now? I will say things change a lot at Christmas time at uh, Books and Company. We do actually we're we're open seven days a week from uh, the first of december so that's a big change for us um but right now christmas you know christmas starts early in a bookshop because it is our important season and the sort of the fall publishing season is traditionally the most exciting and that just sort of flows straight into the christmas season and we start up a little bit earlier because we now run we're running for i think the third year in a row a very popular um, advent calendar because in denmark there's this tradition of celebrating the four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas, and many families give gifts. So what we've done is offer a Books and Company Advent calendar, where you fill out this easy online form indicating who the calendar is for. You'd be surprised to hear how many order calendars for themselves, um, what the person likes to read, and then we choose the four books. We wrap them, we add a message and a little surprise gift, and then we send them send them off to people where they can pick it up at the store. It's a really uh, lovely tradition that's taken off, and I think it's sort of also on the back end of COVID and all of that. It was really it became super popular, and it's also, a, I mean, I will say, a bookseller's dream because you get to really think about and choose just the uh, hopefully right books for each person. Um, but sort of, yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, let's, uh, I wanted to maybe yeah. just uh, r- run down, uh, I think listeners want to hear uh, what uh, is obviously, yeah, I guess front and center uh, when it comes yeah. to visual merchandising, etc. Let's not yeah. start with fiction and nonfiction. Let's, this is also, nope. it's the season of cookbooks uh, normally. Absolutely. Uh, so, and, and also, you know, good coffee table books, you know, big, uh, well, you know, visual feasts. So uh, yeah. what, what would you, what would you be sending uh, my way if I walked in on a, a from, from a, a Sunday at the, at the start of December? Well, depending on what type of cook you are, what level you cook at, um, the cookbooks, which are super popular Christmas gifts, um, they're sort of from the most recent, more easy to use Jamie Oliver type cookbooks, like his five ingredients Mediterranean. Um, to cookbooks, the type that have become super, very popular recent in recent years are cultural book, cookbooks that combine cultural stories with recipes, like um, books like Tokyo Stories. Um, by Tim Anderson. Um, those those types of books are really, really beautiful and inspiring um, just to get to know the places and the recipes. And one thing that's for sure is that we're going to see, continue to see a really strong trend in everything, anything vegetarian or vegan. So books like Anything You Can Cook, I Can Cook Vegan by Richard Macon or Vietnamese Vegetarian by Uyen Lu. Beautiful, um, inspiring, delicious cookbooks. 
And coffee table books, absolutely. They make amazing Christmas presents also because they're the type of books that people don't really buy for themselves throughout the year. So they make great gift books. And this year, I think one of the ones to recommend, there are lots of beautiful ones, but one to recommend this year is Slow Food, Fast Cars, which is an absolutely gorgeous book about a place called Casa Maria Luigia, a guest house in the um, Italian countryside. The house belongs to the chef Massimo Bottura and uh, Laura Gilmore. And it is just beautiful. The layout is beautiful. The pictures are gorgeous. And there are photographs of the interior design of the house, their art collection. As far as I know, Laura Gilmore was an art dealer before she did this. So there's a gorgeous art collection, a car collection they have, as well as um, delicious recipes from all over the region. So that is definitely a cookbook uh, or a coffee table book that will uh, do really well. Isabel, every time I walk into your your uh, shop, also you're you're very good on biographies. Uh, always, yep. uh, I, again, um, I'm not sure if it's when I sort of approach the cast and if I if I make a left or a right. But anyway, uh, there's there's always a, a, an outstanding display. Uh, if you had to pick one biography uh, for the Christmas season, what would it be? I think it will have to be the new Barbara Streisand biography. I, my name is Barbara. I mean, that's just uh, it's it's huge. But I think people have been sort of waiting to see what the reaction would be, but it's gotten such great reviews. And I just the day after the New York Times review came out, there was like a huge list of people just calling to order it for Christmas. So that's going to be and a beautiful cover, by the way, too. Um, so that's going to be a, a big one this year. Uh, just before we, uh, we go, uh, tell us uh, if you had to pick one fiction book um, and one, one nonfiction. Um, I will I say tricky, but... one that very, very tricky. I mean, I personally, I'm a huge short story fan. I would go with Lydia Davis's new collection, Our Strangers. Beautiful, amazing writing. Um, and for nonfiction, the big, my personal favorite is going to be Naomi Klein's Doppelganger, um, but also Hidden Potential by Adam Grant. Those two nonfictions are going to do really well. And they're just both super interesting books. Isabella, always fantastic to talk to you. In my column today, I gave a sort of set of five recommendations if people wanted to have a little bit of a pre-Christmas break. We left Copenhagen out, but I would say, listeners, if you just want a fantastic uh, weekend, uh, definitely, I would say, um, probably check into Sanders, uh, and then you have to sort of make your way uh, a little bit up the coast uh, to Hellerup, and uh, all of your uh, Christmas needs will be uh, sorted uh, at Books and Company. Uh, Isabella Smith joining us uh, on the line from Copenhagen uh, this morning. Uh, just at 10.52, we're going to head a little bit uh, further south uh, from Copenhagen to another European capital right now because one of Paris's best-loved department stores, BHV, has been sold by its owners, Galerie Lafayette. BHV, which is the second oldest uh, shopping destination in the city, uh, has been bought by the Société de Grand Magasin, M- SGM. Um, and of course, to tell us more about this, uh, a new regular contributor, a contributor uh, Adrian Garcia, is with us uh, on the line uh, from Paris this morning. Bonjour, Adrien. Bonjour, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Okay, listen, before we go shopping uh, and uh, look at the aisles of BHV, uh, just tell us uh, what else is making news quickly in uh, Paris this morning. Of course. Uh, You know, yesterday marked the commemoration of November 11th, and today in Paris and all major French cities, there is a Republican march against anti-Semitism, responding to the surge in anti-Semitic incidents across France since October 7th. So today, La Tribune Dimanche headlines, Yes, I March, featuring the picture of 10 notable French public figures, including writers, TV hosts, journalists, filmmakers, and athletes who are actively participating and explaining their support for today's Republican mobilization. Le Journal du Dimanche features a headline with a quote from former French president uh, of the Republic, Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, or history obliged us to be uncompromising with anti-Semitism. In uh, an extensive interview, he reflects on the reasons and methods to combat anti-Semitism in France. He shares his view on the conflict and discuss how the intensity of this crisis can be transformed into something positive. Uh, this oh, is it, actually. 
This will be, of course, uh, something we'll uh, be, uh, of course, dissecting uh, certainly tomorrow morning uh, on The Globalist uh, and, and certainly out, out elsewhere um, in our output um, as well. Uh, of course, uh, we got in touch with you at the, at the um, s- certainly on Friday because uh, this, this major, uh, st- another major story broke, which is this beloved department store. And I'm sure that uh, Emma Nelson's probably going to want to jump in on this one because we've often talked about going to the basement of BHV, which is, it's yes. really, it's an institution. We've actually given them a prize because uh, they, they actually won a monocle retail award as well because if you want any any hue of paint if you want any type of screw doorknob uh step ladder uh, feather dusters this is the place uh that's really going to sort you out but adrian uh gallery lafayette the parent company they've sold us what's happened yeah exactly um bhv le marais a landmark department store for over one six, 160 years along with BHV Parley 2, uh, because they are actually selling the, the two department store, has been acquired by the real estate company SGM. Uh, as you just mentioned, uh, I spend a lot of time at BHV as well. Uh, BHV is renowned for its wide range of products from home decor to gourmet food to de- do, do it yourself. Um, why did Gary Lafayette decide to sell BHV? Uh, Gary Lafayette is streamlining its operation, focusing on its most profitable stores and its flagship and its flagship brand. Sorry, they are pro- prioritizing their Boulevard Haussmann store and international expansion, selling BHV, which face challenge like e-commerce competition uh, and urban access issue. He aligns with the, the strategy. Just, Marcus, very quickly, because we've got a few minutes left, does this surprise you when you hear that uh, that this is, I mean, you have a very classic store, venerable, well-known, um, but at the same time, you have a real estate. It's also an amazing piece of real estate as well that someone wants to pick up a crown jewel. But the question is always, you know, these real estate companies, how much do they want to be in the retail business? Yeah. And I mean, the whole real estate business is under pressure because of the inflation rates or the interest rates. And this is what you will see in the next years coming. And you just need to look at Austria, what is happening with the Signa Group, that they're all re, re- forming and streamlining their portfolios. I think it's a pity because you will see that diversity in retail will be the one thing that people are looking for. You're not going to the same store all around the world and want to have the same assortment. No. And if you're not to catering to the local ones right now, I think you're, you're missing out on the biggest potential that you have in retail. But just on that topic, uh, Adrian, uh, we heard about the local ones. Whenever I feel, uh, when I'm in Paris and I'm in the basement of BHV, with all, of course, all of their, their hardwares and homewares, I mean, it feels very local. I mean, it feels like really this is an institution loved by by Parisians, as much as also tourists who just want to go for a bit of a social study. Yeah, definitely. I, I love to go there, but I have to. I have to tell you, it's been quite a while. I haven't been there because I'm. I'm no shopping on. It's a shame to say that, but uh, I'm, I'm shopping on Amazon. I mean, this is a national tragedy for France, and 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 you're creating it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, just tell me before before we go though. Do are you confident though that uh, okay under new owners uh, maybe it's going to get uh, a, a, yeah a new lease on life uh, and maybe you're going to want to return or yes uh, yes yes I, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to go back there because we're gonna organize a lot of uh, exciting stuff. You know, SGM is laid by brother and sister Frederick and Marilyn Merlin. They are only in their thirties. You know, they are very young and we created this business. Uh, the plans to revitalize BHV is, is quite exciting. You know, they've been very successful, rejuvenated over Gary Lafayette stores in, in, in different cities in, in France, adding features like interactive children departments and, uh, and the diverse event schedule, like a single coming to the Gary Lafayette, etc. So we might soon see BHV transforming into a more engaging and versatile uh, shopping destination. And, and I'm sure you, you, I will see you there. Some, some, yeah, some, I'm, I'm sure some I, some certainly point, in the, near, near the interactive kids department. Uh, Adrian Garcia, <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, talking to you from Paris uh, this morning, just coming to the end of the program. Emma, I need to bring you in very, very quickly. Are, are you optimistic? Because uh, well, you're, you're a BHV lover. I am hopeful because I fear when we were just hearing what Adrian was saying is that they, they, they might try to do to BHV what they've done to Samaritaine, which has turned it into an international luxury destination. And, and sort of slightly taken away its soul. The glorious thing about Beershve is that I can buy a dress, a beautiful lipstick and a toolbox in the space of 20 minutes. And that is something actually which has brings a unique thrill. So please let's make sure that the, the spirit of Beershve is retained. Emily is nodding um, approvingly. He likes that idea. No, I was just trying to come up with a story that would put those three things together uh, in a day for Emma. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> We're going to have to leave it there right at the end of the program. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. Thanks to all of our guests. Have a very good week. Goodbye.